0: It's time. It's Butler's boys. They are champions of the world. The first men's side to hold the 50-over World Cup and the 20-over World Cup at the same time. They are the kings of white ball cricket.
1: English cricket is enjoying a period of unprecedented success. In 2019, the men's team won the 50-over World Cup at Lords in dramatic circumstances. Then, in November 2022, they won the T20 World Cup as well, becoming the first team to hold both titles. But just four years before that 2019 title, at the 2015 World Cup in Australia, England had been humiliated. They lost to Bangladesh and were made to look like they were playing a different form of cricket compared to the modern and aggressive approach of their opponents. Since then, there's been a remarkable turnaround. I'm Graham Ruddick and this is Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at stories from the past and asks, what can we learn from them today? In this episode, we speak to Ed Smith, the Chief Selector for England Cricket between 2018 and 2021, and a man who has played a key role in the team's recent success. Smith has written a book on his experiences in the Chief Selector role called Making Decisions. Smith's decisions revolved around selecting players for the England team, but the book looks at the skills required to making sound decisions in general, not just in cricket, not just in sport, but in many other fields. And it looks at the role human insight and judgment must play alongside the wave of data available today and what elite sport can teach businesses and other fields?
0: It is very hard to compress a book, particularly because I resist books which have a an idea so simple that you can kind of say it in a sentence and then, and then not bother writing or reading the working out of it. So if I tried to compress it, you know, if you forced me to do it, I would say that there's something in all of us that wants to turn difficult processes into a system that can be perfectly captured and repeated and then rolled out without having to do it differently every time. That's a perfectly natural instinct. If you like, we would prefer it if things could be perfected or optimised or turned into a science. There's a bit of that in me too. And of course, I like the idea that selection could be optimised. It can't be. It's always a judgement. And I think I returned to my probably deeper instincts As the son of a novelist and an art teacher and someone who has a humanities rather than a science background, I became very interested in data analytics through American sport when I spent some time in baseball. And of course, you'd be crazy not to be wanting to get the best out of data today, given how much useful data is available. But even then, I think decision making in sport and in all interesting areas is a judgment based on weighing and reconciling different forms of information. So in the case of a selector in cricket, you have data, you have scouting insights, you have feedback from the captains and coaches, you have uh, psychological and medical insights from the science and medicine team, you have what you see with your own eyes, you have a process, and you also have intuition. Now, the hardest thing, of course, is if you believe in a role for intuition, The follow up question comes from the skeptic saying, when do you allow a role for intuition, to which the answer can only be, it's a judgment as well. So there is no easy answer. But I think that takes you a long way forward. If you start from saying, well, we'll create a system that we can then just plug the information into and roll out the system every time, and we'll get it right. I think you've actually made an enormous step backwards. So we did try to build a very robust and rigorous selection process involving all those inputs I just described. And I benefited from a fantastic machine that had been significantly built by Mo Bobat, um, who was head of talent ID and then performance director for the ECB. I also benefited from a brilliant second selector in James Taylor, who was a fantastic judge of cricket and very good coaches and captains who gave great insights from inside the dressing room. I think the role of a selector is to bring all that together in an overarching strategy and you look back on, you know, we played whatever it was, 130 games over three years, you're going to get plenty wrong. And it's usually the ones when you made mistakes you spend plenty of time thinking about afterwards. But I think there is always a role for human intelligence rather than just algorithms or cold data. I think it's how the two come together. You know, I begin the book by telling the story about, you know, when chess master Gary Kasparov lost to Deep Blue, the first sort of moment when a single computer beats a single grandmaster, albeit in a bounded game chess rather than a less bounded one cricket. His response was to create advanced chess, sometimes called cyborg chess, where a computer and a human being compete against a rival team of a computer and a human being. And it turns out that that's actually the most effective and powerful system of all, uh, if you like, combination of machine and human intelligence. And that's really, and I never did, I didn't actually know that story when I started out as a selector. But I think that's what we tried to achieve. We had a very good data team, but it was a question of how human instincts and imagination, sometimes analogy, came together with those, if you like, more objective or, or scientific strands.
1: Ed Smith was a professional cricketer for Kent and Middlesex between 1996 and 2008, winning three caps for England as a batsman in 2003. Since he retired, he has written books, written newspaper and magazine columns, commentated for Test Match Special on the BBC, and co-founded the Institute of Sports Humanities, which offers educational courses for leaders in sport. In 2016, he worked as a consultant to the Royal Challengers Bangalore in the Indian Premier League. Then, in 2018, he was offered the role of England Chief Selector by Andrew Strauss, the Director of Cricket for the ECB the England and Wales Cricket Board.
0: There's never been a plan to my life. I'm very, very instinctive and up for a challenge, and I often do things that surprise me. So I'm the opposite of a kind of of a mapped-out career. When I look back on it, and when having accepted the role of selector when I was 40, I realised then that I'd spent my 30s in a very haphazard and idiosyncratic way looking for an edge in sport, I'd retired as a player at 30, and I'd written a book about luck. I'd spent a lot of time in American sport, become very interested in football and tennis. I'd been doing lots of different things inside and outside organized sport. But if there was a theme, which was not clear to me at the time, is I think I was looking for how ideas could improve performance. And that also led me to behavioral economics, And I think one of the things I learned in my 30s, actually, was the value of scepticism and understanding that you're often going to be wrong. Um, And obviously, that's part of Kahneman's work, and popularized by Michael Lewis in the Undoing Project, that looking at the fallibility of human judgments. So that's, if you like, my 30s, to a degree, simplified and exaggerated. But somewhere deep inside me, if I'm being honest, I also think that... My own judgment has value. And I I suppose the period is selector, you're drawing on those two different things. You're you're looking at systems which can help you to be less wrong, but you're also relying and drawing on your self-belief that you do have value and your way of looking at players and team formation and batting orders and trying to solve problems has a place beyond just what an algorithm says. And there's a tension obviously there, and I think you're constantly living with that tension when
1: you're a decision maker in the modern world. In his book, Smith gives special attention to two key decisions that were taken while he was chief selector. The selection of fast bowler Jofra Archer for the 2019 World Cup. At the time, this was a much debated selection given England were a settled side performing well in the run up to the World Cup. Archer would go on to become a national hero, bowling the over in the final against New Zealand and being England's top wicket-taker in the tournament as a whole. The other decision was the selection of Sam Curran, a player who on the face of it wasn't a great bowler and wasn't a great batter, but he was an all-rounder who Smith thought would make England better as a team. Curran was named Player of the Tournament at the T20 World Cup.
0: I think with the case of the Joffre Archer selection, it was a very interesting selection because England were already number one in the world. And the World Cup was upon us when, you know, it was a few days away when, when Jofra Archer became available for selection. And the team had been settled and unified. So there re- there was a strong school of thought that said, don't make the change. I think where we were very lucky is that firstly, you know, we knew a lot about Joffre. We'd seen him a lot in not only playing Canny Creek for Sussex, but also in franchise league whether it was playing for the Hobart. Hurricanes in the Big Bash or uh, Rajasthan Royals in the IPL. We'd seen all those games. We had people in those teams. We knew he was very special. And we also had very good data. Because every game is televised at the IPL, you know, a byproduct of that is that the decision review system, DRS, demands 12 high-definition cameras. And if the high-definition cameras are there to get that ball tracking about spin, pace, bounce, that also by default makes makes its way into the greedy hands of decision makers like me and we say thank you very much and we're able to see an x-ray of the match effectively and those x-rays showed that Jofra was exceptional by any measure exceptional at the IPL he was ahead of all the England bowlers who were playing in that IPL second best bowler in the tournament you know he was a phenomenal option and you know very unusually for the selection and data team we slipped into prediction mode at that final meeting where we said not only do we think Jofra Archer should be in the 15 we think he should be in the 11 not only do we think he should be in the 11 we think he'd be the best England fast bowler in the tournament and he, he his 20 wickets is an England record for a bowler at a World Cup and of course he bowled the super over and protected the, the score and England win and all the rest of it so he, he was an exceptional option and I believe he's a once in a generation talent in all formats just a phenomenal bowler and I think England have missed him you know when he's been unfit and fingers crossed he's back soon. With Sam Curran, Sam Curran in some ways is an example that, that runs through the book. It's it, it forms one part of one chapter, but it's the thinking behind the Sam Curran selection applies to the whole thing. If I was to say one way in which I or we were different, because I sometimes feel when I'm talking about selections that, you know, James Taylor was a brilliant selector, but he isn't the co-author of the book. So I don't want to put him on the hook for everything I say in the book. But James was, was a brilliant colleague. So let's just speak for me as a second. If I had to say one way in which I was different, I think in the way I would have answered the question, what's your job? I would have said my job is to help England teams to win more through selection rather than I pick England players. Because I think there's a tendency in cricket and in all sports to rush towards what I call an X versus Y debate. I I like X, I like Y, I think he's better, I think he's better. And people start that conversation and that's like a bad selection meeting or when it's sort of pub talk. They start that conversation before anyone's talked about what are our priorities, what are our needs, what's the opposition, what's our best formation. Those questions, which are absolutely fundamental. You know, there's a very good reason why Pep Guardiola let Ibrahimovic leave Barcelona. The answer is that he was building the team around Messi and it didn't fit. He isn't saying the other player's no good. He's saying the other player's brilliant as well, but we're building the team around Messi. Well, with probably the best club side in history that he built. So in the case of Sam Curran, there are, first of all, there's a team dimension, which has got nothing to do with, you know, nice guys or, you know, being smiley or any of that stuff. It's to do with what the team needs. The team needed variety. So let's deal with the test team first. The test team had been picking four right arm, fast, medium bowlers and an off spinner, all of whom were very good cricketers, all five of them. Very, very good. But added up together, I felt it added up to a little bit less than the sum of its parts, particularly overseas. In England, you know, we saw this summer, you know, after i, I finished selection, if it's going to be a three-day test, played on a difficult pitch, then you don't need much variety. Just the ball that lands on off stump and hits off stump or just outside is going to be good enough. But as soon as things get trickier, the more variety you have, the better. If you've got left arm angle, if you've got extreme pace, if you've got leg spin, those things are massively useful when it comes to getting out batsmen who are well set on flat pitches. So Curran brought that. His left handedness was a huge asset and his swing. He's also a very good batsman. And I used to say in selection meetings, well, not only does Sam Curran bring all the things he brings as a bowler and a competitor, I reckon he'll end up with a higher batting average than the last pick batter. So the last pick batter for England in Test cricket was averaging just under 25. Well, Curran was averaging, you know, 30 when I was around as a batter alone. Now it's 27, still ahead of that last pick batter. And he gets you wickets and he competes and he's a point of difference. So that's one aspect. And we were always thinking about how do we create a team that's more than the sum of its parts? And I think with England, that was also supported by an understanding of the talent distribution. So again, people often talk about selection and decision-making as it's a vacuum. I like to set a team up this way. I like players like, well, hang on a minute. What have you got? What resources do you have? And how can you assemble those resources in a way that makes it most likely to win? So that's a slightly different question to, I like this player. Um, I think we've seen, you know, with Curran, whose win-loss ratio is outstanding in an England shirt across all formats. You know, in Test cricket, it was 79% in the three years when I was selected. So in other words, of games that reached a conclusion, nearly all of them, very small number of draws, Um, England winning 8 out of 10 which is an incredible fact you know some people have said oh well you know is that just luck well 21 games is a pretty big sample size it's two complete seasons two complete calendar years of test cricket pretty much and I don't think that was a coincidence I think that's Sam Curran bringing things that are unusual so in terms of application beyond cricket you know nearly all spheres of life with the exception of you know the Bronte's writing novels or, you know, a poet or a perhaps a, a, an unbelievable solo talent. In nearly all spheres of life rely on teams, groups, subdivided, you know, sets of people setting about problem solving. And can we think in terms of teams rather than just individuals? Now that brings, you know, challenges because sometimes you're going to be leaving out people whose individual statistics merit selection. But I think there is a way to answer that truthfully, which is that your ultimate responsibility as a decision-maker in a team is to serve the team and to do what's best for that group. And sometimes that will bring a lot of tension and just inevitably disappointment, but that's your responsibility, not to serve individuals or to have a seek an easy life.
1: You, you've touched on this a little bit in in that answer, but do you think strategy and policy as sort of a stated aim is is overvalued? Uh, you touch on this in the book and in, in a chapter that sort of gives a, a series of different examples about the spectator and, and also your, your own role. But can you just go into it in a little bit more detail?
0: Obviously, the nature of this conversation, everything we've spoken about so far, is strategic to a degree. It's about frameworks and approaches which which are being exercised in the pursuit of superior strategy. However, I'm very sceptical about the way that most people use the word strategy. I mean, you know, John Verarity, who was a great coach and captain in Australian cricket, <laughs> he used to say the strategy of a sports team is to win as much as it can. Uh, okay, so that's dealt with that. Let's move on. You know, and that's a very se- sort of subtle and imaginative person speaking there. And what he was taking issue with was people buying time by talking about strategy, but without actually recognising that strategy is really about trade-offs and about judgments. So one of the things I... You know we often used to talk about in selection was there's nothing nice or fluffy about the concept of strategy. Strategy means if you're focusing there, you're not focusing there. There are only a finite amount of resources. and that's true emotionally, it's true financially, it's true in terms of personnel. You can't do everything all the time. And if you're focusing in one area, it clearly means that you're prepared to accept a relative weakness in another. So that's one of the points about strategy. Secondly, connected, I think sometimes people overestimate the degree to which they know what's going to happen. And again, it's not strategic to believe you're better at prediction than you are. It's unstrategic. You're creating an unnecessary vulnerability. So I think many sports teams, which are also huge bureaucracies, remember, find it very hard to accept uncertainty, which creates problems. And people will often say, for example, you know, after one game, the match went well, you must feel that justified the selection, to which I would reply, no, because it was one game and we believe we made the right decision regardless of the outcome of one game. If we give it a bit of time, we'll see. And the same would go after a defeat. Very occasionally, you, a, a mistake is obvious and it, <laughs> it's all too obvious and you repent at leisure. But usually decisions and outcomes in the very good phrase of, Annie Duke, the poker player turned writer, are loosely correlated. There's a loose correlation between decisions and outcomes. Over time, that correlation firms up. But I think the word strategy is used very loosely, often unhelpfully. And often I see people come into roles and say, what we need to do now is develop a strategy. And they spend quite a long time not doing very much, not adding any value, basically prettying up a PowerPoint presentation, which has got nothing to do with reality, I think a more useful framing is to say, do you know what's going on? Can you internalize the resources at your disposal? And then are you able to have the imagination to work out how you might deploy them in the most effective way? So in a sense, for all the, and I say in the book, before strategy comes history, and, you know, Mervyn King and John Kay, who wrote a very good book, Radical Uncertainty, Say most good thinking begins with what's going on here. So in order to work out whether someone's going to have a good strategy, if they can really accurately describe the strengths and weaknesses of the organisation they're responsible for, that's probably the best predictor of whether they're going to do a good job at creating and then following through a
1: good strategy. Some of Ed Smith's decisions as Chief Selector were considered innovative, such as moving Joss Butler, England's best batsman, to opening batsmen in the T20 team, or playing multiple all-rounders in test matches. These are just two examples of how elite sport can be a hotbed of innovation. Also think about how the Spanish football team played with no strikers. But as Smith writes in Making Decisions, innovation takes courage and resilience to see through, often against widespread opposition. We rightly value innovation very highly in the UK, and in business more generally. But is there a misunderstanding about what qualities and skills are actually needed to deliver it? That's a very good
0: question. Innovation brings with it innate risks, again, which are misunderstood. So in the same way that we talk about about strategy and people don't realise that there's a coldness to strategy, a ruthlessness to strategy, which is that you're not going to allow yourself to dissipate resources in an unstrategic way. In the same way with innovation, innovation brings with it an implied insult, and the implied insult is to conventional wisdom, which, by the way, of course, occupies a very prominent front row seat in the commentary box and in the press room, where the dominant figures are ex-players who had their experiences and the logic they used and the conventional wisdom that dominated in their time. So you're picking a fight if you're innovative in sport. And you've got to understand that it's not going to be an easy ride. One of the things that I remember catching a flight to Chennai with England cricket, and I read Michael Cox's very good book, Zonal Marking about football. And the bit I took out of the book, apart from all the fascinating insights about individual teams and tactics in football, was that every great innovation in football begins with discomfort, begins with a rout, begins with everyone saying you're mad. You can't do that. So whether that, the example I use in, in, in making decisions is spain's decision at the back end of their dynastic success as a world footballing power you know in the early years of the 2010s they obviously did away with the striker and sometimes fabregas played as a false nine and there was no out and out goal scorer it was just a whole series of highly skillful midfielders making life very difficult for the opposition because they've got so many different creative options but right up to the final which which Spain win 4-1 or 4-0, I can't remember. There's huge resistance. And I remember lots of English pundits saying, imagine how good Spain would be if only they pick a big, strong lad up front to bang the goals in. Well, how good do you want them to be? You know, they've just won the last, or they're in the process of winning three major events in, in succession. So there's an in, there's an implied insult there about the value of the goalscorer. Now, in the case of cricket, you know, we did lots of things that were innovative, and they all brought with them very significant risks. One of the things, I, of, of all the decisions that, that England cricket made in the three years that I was selector, one of the ones I felt most strongly about was Josh Butler should open the batting in T20s. He hadn't been doing that, and he has done that ever since. Now, technically, as should be the case, the captain has the batting order, and I believe that should be the case strongly. But it's also true that when I was selector, I passionately believed Josh should open the batting, and he is the world's best opening batsman, bar none. You know, he's coming off the back today of what was it, 80, uh, unbelievable 80 not out in the semi-final of a World T20. And he's got a shot in the final of, of bringing home the silverware. Now, that was in conflict with conventional wisdom at the time that felt that the best use of Butler was as a finisher. Now, some of the logic people used there was, that oh, we've got so many options at the top of the order. Why would you put Butler there? You know, we need him let down the order when the game's on the line. Those kinds of phrases were very common and indeed dominated the intellectual marketplace. The answer is that in a game of restrictions, and T20 is a game of restrictions, you only have 120 balls. In the case of bowling, you're forbidden from bowling your best bowler more than four overs. In the case of batting, there's no one stopping you from your best player facing... As many balls as he can so in effect you need to have a very compelling reason to restrict your outstanding batsman to 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 balls and i felt that we needed to build the t20 team around Jos butler as an opener with ultra aggressive people around him to almost double down on england's strength which was its attacking batting um and look you know along with everyone else you know i'm loving uh the 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 team's current form and England became number one in the world quite quickly using that that approach. It comes with criticism. You know, every time England lost a game, people would say, oh why's why are they not opening with the you know with Jason Roy and and um Johnny Bairstow or you know why is Joe Root not in the team all these questions. And you know actually Owen Morgan showed a lot of resilience as captain to resist all that pressure. Um in the same way in Test cricket, we were prepared to innovate by doing something that very few teams have done, which is to play lots of all-rounders, sometimes three wicket keepers, sometimes three wicket keepers and three bowling all-rounders. So six all-rounders at times, simply because if you look at the talent distribution that England had, that was the best way for England to set up in those particular conditions to win those particular games. And without doubt, the most radical test selection we used was in Sri Lanka when we played three spinners, three all-rounders, three wicket keepers. You know, and it was very, you know, and sometimes, you know, people in the media called it total cricket. They knew I was interested in total football. And I think there was a very innovative period there. You know, could we have held firmer for longer on that? Maybe. That's something that uh, that I should take the blame for as, as I was head of selection at that time.
1: Well, just picking up on that on that last point, when you look back on on your tenure, what are the things that with hindsight, wonderful word, you might do differently or or what regrets do you have?
0: Well, look, overall, you look back on the, the the period, I think lots of things were, it was always interesting, so it was always absorbing. We, we won a lot of games. We, we averaged seven out of 10 wins of completed matches across the three formats. I don't think we controlled the narrative very well in Test Cricket. I think we did better in Test Cricket than people realised, and I wonder why we failed to get that message across. Um Particularly in the early stage when I was selected, when we, we had one phase when we won eight test matches out of nine, which is the second sort of best streak in the history of England test cricket. I don't think it particularly became part of a strong narrative. And then when we lost one game, it would kind of be you a know, big story or England aren't that good or whatever. So, so maybe there was a, a failure to communicate that strategy, if you like that, that, that narrative. Um, I think w- w- when I look back on it, I think we were at our best when we were least conventional as a test team, so taking the test team first. So probably keeping going on that high risk approach. And it was fantastic to see, you know, Brandon McCullum, Rob Key, and Ben Stokes play such a daring and exciting form of cricket in the summer of 2022. I think everyone thrilled to that. People always want to watch a team that plays on the front foot. In terms of, you know, white ball teams, they went very well. I think again where all formats struggled was like, again, I think when COVID hit and we had to make a lot of rotation really to protect people's mental health in in biosecure bubbles when they were spending three, four months in a stretch in a hotel room and not really allowed to do anything other than play cricket and go back to the room. Could we have explained that better? That we weren't tactically experimenting or avoiding difficult decisions. We were just really trying to keep the team functioning well by protecting our key assets. Again, you know, as, as selector at that time, You know, could I could I maybe have written something through ECB channels because you're relying a bit on press conferences where you're and then, you know, inevitably people will write what they want to and position that information as they want to. Could we have actually said, okay, we're going to explain this ourselves? Could I have sat down and done a TV interview? All these things were worth thinking about in retrospect. Um, Generally, when you look back on a, a, a set of decisions, you very seldom feel. Regret about decisions that were in your voice, in your true spirit, even if they didn't work, because you feel that's who you are and you played your cards, and that's that's you're not going to win every time. I think when when you feel you compromised a bit too much, that's when you look back and you're a bit critical, and you think, you "Could I've been a bit braver?" But it's always a balance as well, because you there is an element of of working within a machine and working as a collective as well.
1: You touched on communication there a couple of times. And in in the book, you talk about the dangers of communication-led strategies and, and sort of people having expectations above what is actually the reality. And I think Theresa May is one example that you give. But there you've just touched on how important it can also be. So what what role do you think it needs to play?
0: Well, I think that you, you've raised a very good point there. And I think the point you, you're getting at is which I don't make quite as explicit as you have in that question, is there's a, there's a distinction between really important, useful communication of truths that need to be understood better than they currently are, which will help you, and spin, which is just making someone look better than they really are. And, you know, with that, I don't wish to you know, turn the knife on former prime ministers, but I think actually the, the spin doctoring about early Theresa May was actually too good because they made it sound you know, extremely artfully that these silences and longueurs betokened incredible depth of thinking, which when the election campaign began, we, we started to doubt quite considerably. So in some ways, if the artifice is created too high and too skillfully, it can all crash down unfairly because people don't like sensing that they've been a little bit misled but conversely let's take your point which is the importance of truthful and essential communication yes um sometimes and this is why i sometimes hold back from from criticizing selection now in any sport when you've been on the inside you know you sometimes have a lot of information that other people don't sometimes you can't say what it is sometimes you can The art of communication, I think, is to help people understand the truthful context, not to try and get them to say nice things or to, you know, do favours in return for positive coverage, but to genuinely explain the context and the thinking. And then people will make their own judgement, whether that's media or fans, and they'll say, well, I understand where they're at and the conclusion they've reached, and I might take a different conclusion. And that's part of the joy of sport and the reason why it's, so absorbing as a sphere of public life, but again, you know, really strategic communication brings the everyman closer to a true understanding of context. I'll give you an example. England had played a dozen different before I started as selector. England had tried and discarded a dozen top order batters in the previous few years, and their median average was twenty four. So. If you like, that's the expected outcome of the next guy too. Because I happen to know that the previous selectors were very sensible people. Trevor Bayliss and Paul Farbrace as coach and assistant coach. Mick Newell, Gus Fraser, James Whitaker as independent selectors. They, they were, or as non-coaching selectors. They were very sensible people. They'd picked perfectly sensible players and they'd averaged 24 collectively. So what's the likelihood that you're going to go and find Ricky Ponting or Ralph Ravid? It's not going to happen unless they're 17 years old and Ollie Pope might become that player who we picked at 19, but that unbelievable test player is not going to be playing for Leicestershire. You know, we know that because they would have found him. So how do you signal that the selections you're making are conditioned by that underlying reality without unnecessarily insulting or affecting the confidence of people you do pick? Cause you don't want to say to people or oh, picking you, but you know, we don't have high expectations. That's obviously not a good strategy. But when it comes to, for example, playing lots of all-rounders or playing 3 wicket keepers, as we sometimes did with Joss Butler, Ben Foulkes, and Johnny Vesto, that was born of underlying realities about England's talent distribution. And I think it would be, it was sometimes misconstrued, and again, you know, I take responsibility for this, that we were trying deliberately to be clever or innovative. We weren't. We were trying to solve problems. And, you know, it's it's a matter of fact that it remains the case that you know, the last-picked England batter, so this summer just gone after my time, Alex Lees, has now gone out of the side, been dropped, with a test average of in the low 20s. It remains the fact that Jos Butler, who was a weekkeeper batsman, averages a lot more than that as a batter, 32, as does Sam Curran as a bowling all-rounder, as we know now... You know, does Johnny Best, though? So it would be helpful, I think. It would have been more helpful for us if people had understood the context more fully. Um, but that's also a balance because y- you have to accept responsibility for eye-catching selection. You don't want to shift the blame.
1: Putting together some of the things that we've spoken about so far and the book and also your work with the Institute of Sports Humanities, how much do you think the business world can learn from elite sports? Well, if you're interested, first
0: of all, I learned a great deal. So let's reverse the question and then I'll take the question head on. I learned a huge amount from other spheres, not only other sports, baseball and football in particular, but also other spheres, including the arts, where, you know, I think one of the best books I've ever written about captaincy doesn't mention sport. It, it, it's about conducting by Christopher Seaman. And it just talks about what a conductor does and the balances he has to strike. And I wish I'd read that when I was when I was a captain or before I've been a captain. I also learned a huge amount from investing. You know, one of my friends, Howard Marks, is a legendary investor and writes a brilliant memo or letter for Oak Tree, which has become a, you know, a, a sort of legendary thing in investment. And I found what he described about decision-making almost perfect, and often I get to the end of the memo and think that's that's, that's what we're doing. Literally, I wouldn't change a word, just change the context, is exactly the same. He's weighing different forms of information, He's living with uncertainty. He's not assuming he can, can predict. He's balancing, if you like, cooler rationality with instinct and intuition. He's suspicious of consensus because he knows if you always do what the consensus says, then you're not adding any value as an individual. And he has this great line, in order to have the benefit of being different and better, you have to bear the risk of being different and worse. That's selection in one sentence. Someone who selects the team that on average would have been selected anyway does not have a job they have a sinecure because clearly a polling company could tell you the aggregate of opinion among informed people in english cricket you don't need someone to draw a salary to do that where it gets interesting is when someone understands that consensus as i always wanted to do and diverges from it in some instances and the moments when they diverge from it add value overall on balance So I learned a huge amount from investing. And I also learned, so let's follow that a bit further, when the heat's on, that means you're doing your job. If the heat's not on, you're not doing your job. I don't mean you should have to create unnecessary enemies, and I never wanted to do that. But it's the times when you diverge from conventional wisdom that you earn your money. And obviously, you're not going to get every single one right, but you're going to get more right than the next guy. That's the job. And that's the way you'll end up being judged. In terms of sport to business, I think there are many similarities obviously you're making decisions there is context there's history there's your institutional identity there's the difficulty of prediction there's living with uncertainty it's quantitative in that we know what happens you know and it may take a bit of time but you know there will be a whether it's a pnl or a or a win loss column so there are lots of similarities i think in particular when I, you know, the Institute of Sports Humanities was founded by a brilliant entrepreneur, Andrew White, who's my partner in, at the Institute. I became interested in, in the imaginative and intuitive aspect of business intelligence. So one of the things I learned from working with Andrew was that he would often have a strong sense of the chessboard, and the likely upcoming moves, likely but not certain, at first glance. After the fact. I could sometimes remember and describe them quite well but he actually could see them ahead of time so they're very different forms of uh, you know intelligence if you like and it's actually reminded me of the, you know sometimes people think sports people aren't naturally intelligent they're incredibly intelligent it's just a different form of intelligence from narrative intelligence or academic intelligence you know many of the most intelligent people i know are professional athletes and i envy their their spontaneous decision making So I think selection in particular has some uses as a model or a framework for business, because in particular, it takes the myth of the sort of charismatic moment out of it. We touched on this at the very beginning of the conversation. A selector, even though he might agonize about the choice of words he uses when he selects someone or deselects them, you might spend a great deal of thought thinking about what you're going to say or how you're going to try and make people feel confident or valued. The reality is once you've taken the position, once they're in, it's up to them and you're not in the room, quite literally. I spent very little time in the dressing room as selector. I felt that was the player's space. And, you know, who wants to bump into a selector when they're, you know, getting changed for a cricket match? Johan Cruyff had a great line about directors of Barcelona Football Club. He said, as none of the directors or off-field figures need to get changed they don't need to come into the changing room and i felt a bit the same as a selector like i'm already wearing a suit and i'm gonna stay wearing a suit so stay out the dressing room so it forces people to confront that the key thing is the decision a selector can't hide behind i put up my arm around him really nicely or you know i gave him a really big pat on the back or I did tell him to do that big six, just a few minutes before, and then he did it. No one's interested in any of that. It's a complete irrelevance. The question is, over a decent sample size, over a very large number of decisions, a large number of games, do your decisions stack up? And I suppose to you know paraphrase that American election specialist, it's the decision stupid became a mantra. And James Taylor always used to say to me, next decision, one decision at a time, let's not get ahead of ourselves, let's just try and get the next decision as good as we possibly can, go through our process, give it our full attention, arrive at the decision feeling fresh and not scrambled or tired or confused or irrational or emotional, just each decision one at a time. And over the course of the season, the summer, a spell, a a term, you hope that those decisions contribute to success so i think where selection is most transferable it's an exercise in decision making where there is no escaping the limelight there is no pretending that it can be spun or rewritten the facts are the facts the decisions are the decisions and the important thing is who's on the field and there's no hiding place
1: how has access to data changed the skills that are needed? of a decision-maker and leader compared to what they used to be?
0: In every walk of life, the quantity and quality of data is being transformed and expanded extremely rapidly. So, you know, when I was a player that the averages would kind of be put on the, you know, dressing room wall or published in the newspaper. And that was, that was what people thought of as data. We now know that it's a very clunky and approximate guide to performance. And you know, we pioneered at England cricket something called weighted averages, which basically adds context to headline averages. So a bowler who's playing in very, very favorable conditions, his bowling average probably flatters to deceive as it's published in the newspaper. And a batsman who plays on very bad wickets, his actual performance is probably ahead of what is published in the newspaper. You know, and we had a, an algorithm which converted the actual difficulty of the game into a different number. There's a further step there. So that's, if you like, algorithms. There's a further step, which is that obviously we're reaching the point where algorithms can improve themselves through AI and machine learning. I was part of a big project with the AI team at Microsoft with ECB, and we were were sort of trying to develop that self-learning tool. I think there's a, a way to go yet. So you want access to the cutting edge of what what can be delivered to you as a decision maker you want better information and you want it to be analyzed in a superior way by the best minds you can find in england cricket's case we were very lucky we have a brilliant data analyst called nathan lehman who's also a very good writer novelist broad thinker and nathan was an important part of the conversations i had at england cricket you know he was another Lens on selection. He wasn't a formal selector, but he was always a very useful person to speak to. One of the things that data has been uh, has been useful for is not what people think. They think it's going to tell you who to pick t- tomorrow. That's very seldom the case. Where data is very useful is it shows you how the game is changing. And some of Nathan's best work we would we called "What It Takes to Win." So Nathan would show how the game of cricket is changing. I'll give you an example. We touched on it earlier on. Decision review system has meant that many more people get LBW than used to be the case. That has had implications for the game of cricket that are very, very significant in terms of technique and tactics. In the same way, a relatively new format like 2020, I played in the first year of T20 in 2003, has been a crash course in evolving strategies. Everyone had a different initial take and it's been refined very, very quickly. One of the things that data shows is that teams typically are too cautious. In other words, they don't access their full resources. We've touched on that earlier on with the Joss Butler type situation when often he would have access to very few balls. But also, very often teams lose without a fast-scoring player ever getting to the middle. So obviously they've got their strategy wrong. And data can show very clearly the relationship between aggression and risk and winning, given a wealth of, you know, sample size. And that's where I think data helps you to understand reality rather than taking away the need for your judgment. And I think that's a crucial distinction. You know, oftentimes at press conferences, I'd be asked the question, what's the data saying? And I'd say, I res- I, we accept responsibility for the decision, actually. We use data on all the decisions, but we accept responsibility. Because if you start saying the data says, A, why do you have a job? And B, you shouldn't be washing your hands like that of of responsibility.
1: Where do you think innovative thinking is happening today?
0: Well, I'll give you an example of an innovative thinker who has changed his sport fundamentally. And that's Daryl Morey in basketball, who, again, people thought about, I should have said this at the very beginning. Innovation begins with a very simple insight, usually. Useful innovation, usually begins with someone asking a big question that, for whatever reason, people have not asked before or not been prepared to grapple with. We've touched on it in T20, which is, shouldn't we put our most valuable batters right to the top of the order where they have access to the most balls, even if we then don't have access to them when the game's being decided at the end? In the case of basketball, it was even simpler than that. It was, why don't we shoot for three points more rather than two? And Darren Morey, first of all, uh, the Rockets and uh, now the 76ers has basically based his teams around that principle, which is if you can set up recruitment and on, field str- on uh, court strategy to support that approach, you will gain an edge and basically now everyone does it. So it's a bit like it's an example of innovation which has changed the whole game. And there was a time when a very small number of teams uh, took a, a large number of three point shots and now it's across the board. So, I think American sport, where there are huge resources, and also there's a uh, American sport is at ease with the idea that you need to win, otherwise, you'll get moved on, which isn't always the case in cricket. Sometimes people just survive in cricket for being nice guys and you know, not locking the boat. I think American sport typically has led in innovation. Moneyball, obviously, in Michael Lewis's book, became a catchphrase for uh, data led recruitment strategy in, in baseball. I was fortunate I spent some time in baseball just before that book was published. And you could see that data was coming into the sport very quickly. I think T20 has been a good, as as we've talked about, a testing ground for data strategies. There's still more to go there. And of course the big question is is football, where I don't feel the data revolution has quite happened yet. I think football is on the edges of that revolution. Um, but there's a long way still to go, and probably that's an area where yeah you know, we're doing some work on that at the institute about how you know football strategy could be more informed by the data that's available to those teams. So that's an exciting area to be thinking about. That's probably all I can say at the moment. But yeah, I think you know we are we see football as being a very interesting area.
1: You conclude the book by saying unpredictability is going to become very valuable in the future, that the one of the responses to the access to data will be that as data is able to sort of predict what the most obvious next things happen is, the power of having something unpredictable will become really quite valuable. Do you see that as something that has consequences beyond sport, or is it purely a sporting observation?
0: No, that's a very, again, a, a brilliant question. How applicable is that theory? So just to recap, I end the book by saying that extremely sophisticated use of data will particularly assist defensive strategies. If you know what the optimal play is, you'll be able to defend against it better. And we're seeing that now in all sports where, you know, sport is always defenses catching up with attacks and then making what used to be optimal now suboptimal. That's the history of sport in a couple of sentences. And I think when we're able to identify what the most likely scenario is we're able to organize ourselves to snuff it out which of course leads to a paradox which is in that situation the person who does what might be considered to be suboptimal who does something totally unpredictable gains new value so in a way the game changer becomes very very valuable in a data-led world That was one more probably one of the most interesting moments in the three years i was selector it was probably the Oh, I say best and Ben Stokes' innings is to win that Headingley test and the World Cup final, unbelievable. But Josh Butler got a hundred against Australia to finish off a 5 0 series win in 2018. And he was batting with the number eleven and he was already plenty. You know, he was in, he was dominating the game, but then you know, it was very close to the end. And there was one ball left in the in the over. And the rational thing to do was take a single and get to the other end and then play it out. And I think everyone expected him to do that. And the bowler bowled the perfect ball for that set of assumptions that Joss would be thinking about a low-risk shot and then he'd take it into the next over and then he'd stick or twist in the next. And out of no way, just hits a back foot shot over the bowler's head for six, like the hardest shot in cricket, incredibly high risk. And the game's over. You know, he's not on strike anymore, but he's hit six and, you know, it's right down to the one or two needed and England win. And you realise then, I remember speaking to the guys about it, and they were all in awe of it, but also amazed by you know what happened. And he said afterwards, I think in an interview with Sky, I, I didn't really know what happened there. It just felt like the thing to do. It just, it just happened. Now, that type of thought process becomes very hard to defend against, impossible to defend against, because you can't plan for pure spontaneity. You can't plan for randomness, actually. you know The, the optimal strategy in rock, paper, scissors is a perfectly random one. The optimal strategy for a tennis player on when to go to his weaker serve is a perfectly random one. No one can predict perfect randomness. So people who are just that little bit uh, open to doing things in an unplanned way become very difficult opponents in an increasingly predictable world. Which is a kind of a a nice story in a way because it shows that our value, whatever, is all the right word. The value of the human being um, is when they're most human. Um, I think that's true for the decision maker. I think the value of the the decision maker is in their powers of analogy, imagination, intuition, working alongside the machine, if you like, the more scientific strands. And it's also the value of of the winning athlete, that the person who's got that totally unpredictable streak becomes incredibly useful.
1: Ed Smith left his role as Chief Selector in April 2021 after the ECB decided to scrap the position and the selection structure that had been in place in favour of handing all responsibilities to the head coach. England had just suffered a disappointing 3-1 defeat to India in a test series. However, in early 2022, after a run of poor results, there was a clear out at the top of English cricket. The new managing director, Rob Key, said he would bring back the role of selector. He is still looking for the person to fulfill that role.
0: There've been conversations about me coming back and doing cricket and that's not on my agenda at the moment. I'm very happy doing what I'm doing and I'm really enjoying the setup they have. Rob Key's doing a good job as MD, Brendan McCollum, Matthew Mott as coaches, Josh Butler and Ben Stokes. To me, it's a really good setup and you know, I've lots of friends in that setup and I, mean, I wish them every success. And I think if you have confidence in your ideas, then, you know, you, you kind of believe that the reason they're good ideas is that they'll be, you know, proved better rather than worse over the long time. So that's absolutely fine. And I've, I've loved everything that's sort of, well, I'm loving the things that are happening in the career right now. In terms of that brief period of time where selection was closed down and it all became invested in one person as the head coach, you know, it didn't feel to me the right idea at the time. I thought it would probably create a lot of pressure on on that head coach very nice guy chris silverwood a close colleague of mine as a player and then uh, on the off-field side of it as as it did in fact turn out and also i thought it underestimated the fact that england cricket isn't like england football it's not like we we play one format and we build towards occasional international tournaments they're playing all the time and there are three teams not one so you're going to have to make difficult decisions there about you know which team Gets priority at certain points. Those strategies are always changing with the cycle, whether it's an Ashes cycle or an ODI World Cup cycle or a T2 cycle. You want to end up with a situation where all three teams are winning, but they're probably getting access to the key players at slightly different times. I think it's very hard for, you know, whether it's one coach to do that or whether it's if it's split coaches, I think it's impossible for, for them to, if you like, navigate that tension. So I think, um, you know, Rob Key's done the right thing. I think he's done a good job as acting head of selection. Uh, he's obviously in the MD role uh, if he keeps it that way I think he's a good selector if he appoints as I think he's currently inclined to do sort of reinstate the selection system that's also a good plan I think you know the sadness for me was that it was not personal at all because I had a you know, fantastic three years loved it and I never really sought the role and never sought a sort of survivorship situation I always thought you know you just try to make as big a contribution as you can if it's two years three years four years doesn't matter um the one thing I felt sad about was that uh, there was a period of time when I think England Cricket had access to a pretty sophisticated talent ID and selection system, of which the selectors were only one part. There was also the scouting network. There was also the data team. We, you know It all came into selection to some degree in the decision making, but it also was a systemic institutional system. Systemic system doesn't mean anything. It was also across the whole organisation. I thought that was a shame that that became, you know, that that was altered in the way that it was for a year. But I think it's back strong now and, and helping to win games of cricket. So all good.
1: You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to the Off to Lunch newsletter on Substack, our sister publication, where, as well as bonus content, you will get business news and analysis throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.